This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. I'm Steve Raphael, professor at the School of Public Policy, and I'll be teaching you economics in the fall. Um, a lot of the research I do is on the criminal justice system and quite a bit on the criminal justice system in California. And so what, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what has happened in this state in California in the last um, nine or 10 years in terms of criminal justice reform and how it's impacted public safety and how it's impacted uh, racial and ethnic disparities involvement with the criminal justice system. So what this picture is that, that you're seeing right here, the blue line is the, the U.S. incarceration rate. So it's the number of people in prison per 100,000. And then the red line is uh, the same rate for California. And what you can see is that, you know, from the 80s, this is mass incarceration right here, right, between 80 and 2000. You can see the huge increase in uh, incarceration in the country. And California was kind of going lockstep with the United States. And then things start to sort of change in the 2000s where incarceration is still growing in the states, but it's growing sort of at a slow rate or, or holding stable in California. And then in 2011, basically what you see are these sharp declines, right, to the point where um, we're at a point now where our incarceration rate is where it was in 1990. And this is of 2017. So right here at the end of this uh, time series, we had about 134,000 people in prison. It's estimated that after the governor uh, goes through the next set of releases with, uh, um, in response to COVID, we'll have fewer than 100,000 people in prison in California. So that's, a, that's a, a big drop from this peak, right? So at the peak, there were 172,000 people in prison in California, and that, that's changed quite a bit. So what I want to do is I want to talk about this, this big change, right? Um, behind this is, is uh, in the same way um, that this huge increase is driven by policy, this decline is driven by policy. So I want to talk about the policies that are causing those declines. And in, in part, it was policy that was forced upon the state, but also in part, it was policy that was chosen by the voters. And so what we'll do is, is talk about essentially what drove that. There are basically two broad forces uh, that are driving reforms in, in California and, and why California is sort of deviating from the rest of the nation. Part of it is that there's this long history of litigation on behalf of, of prison inmates, where inmates are, are essentially the, the plaintiff, and there's a, a very activist office actually in Berkeley um, that has often taken on their case and has has uh, sought legal uh, remedy for um, for some of the consequences of crowding. And secondly, there's been kind of this profound shift in public opinion, where um, you know the country used to be very punitive, and uh, and California moved in that punitive direction too. And I think it's it's clear now that we've shifted gears, right? And that, that the public seems to think that it's gone too far. And you can kind of see that in, uh, in, in voting and in particular in referendums. So in terms of the first bit, there were uh, two key um, 
uh, uh, lawsuits that were brought on behalf of inmates, uh, Coleman v. Brown and Plata v. Brown. And this, this is basically, it should actually, now it should say Coleman v. Newsom, Plata v. Newsom, because as the governor shifts, the, the defendant shifts. Um, but what, what these two lawsuits basically argued is that um, overcrowding in California's prisons, which has been a problem for many, many, many years, um, was the key reason why people or inmates in the system were not receiving adequate health care and adequate mental health care. And the, the constitutional argument um, was that denying uh, health care and mental health care was a violation of the constitutional pr- um, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. So these two lawsuits um, have been uh, litigating for many years. In 2006, a federal three-judge panel uh, established authority over um, uh, these two lawsuits and actually joined them into one lawsuit. And in 2009, they ordered uh, the state um, to basically, uh, you know, either build more prisons or reduce the population such that the prison population was 137.5% of capacity. The state appealed to the Supreme Court. This is when, uh, when then uh, Attorney General Brown okay, was, was the governor. And then in 2011, when our, our new vice presidential candidate, A.G. Harris, uh, was the attorney general, um, the Supreme Court upheld the population limit and basically ordered the state to, to sort of comply with the three-judge panel. So this, this debate went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it, it was started by a small law office in Berkeley. It's kind of an amazing story. So what did the state do? Well, I mean, there were, there were efforts underway before uh, the Supreme Court decision that were meant to sort of alleviate overcrowding. So there was um, some sort of minor reforms to uh, uh, parole that tried to make it hard for um, uh, parole officers to revoke relatively low-risk inmates based on a risk score. But the big change was correction realignment, which we're going to talk about before, we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But aside from corrections realignment, there are also a series of voter initiatives that have been passed where, you know, in California, we can place initiatives on the ballot and essentially the voters can pass the initiative and it can actually change, uh, change, change law in the state. So for example, in 2012, California's passed Proposition 36, which revised uh, our three strikes law, made it less punitive. Um, a big one that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today is in 2014, California passed Prop 47, which basically redefined a series of felonies, uh, low-level felonies to misdemeanors. And then there's also a, a, another notable um, ballot initiative in 2016 called Prop 57, that provided incentives uh, for prison inmates to program, refrain from institutional misconduct, and then they could earn good time credits off of uh, off off their time. So essentially, what we had is you know a, a response to the Supreme Court in this corrections realignment, the the content of which we'll talk about in a minute, and then we have a whole series of voter initiatives that that are kind of chipping away at the prison population with the 2011 and the 2014 uh, 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 sort of actions being the most, uh, most substantive and the most consequential. In terms of corrections realignment, so what, what did corrections realignment did, do? Well, well basically, 
what it did is it defined uh, a, a sort of uh, a class of, of inmates that, that were called triple nons, people who were convicted of non-sexual, non-violent, non-serious offenses, um, and that were serving time in state prison. And what the, what the bill said is that from now on, anybody who falls in this category can't be sent to state prison. They have to be sent to, they have to, be sent to county jail. And of course, when you send someone to county jail, the county has to pay for it. And uh, rather than sending someone to state prison where the state pays for it. And so you could imagine that that's going to alter the way counties uh, uh, treat people in these offense categories. The other thing that, um, that the bill did was it made it much more difficult to revoke people um, back to uh, prison for a technical parole violation, right? So it created something called post-release community supervision, where basically people coming out of prison would be uh, in the community correction system or their county rather than being uh, monitored by parole uh, agents. Um, and that alone led to a, a drop in revocations. And also when they were getting revocations, basically um, they were being revoked to a short term in a county jail rather than being sent back to prison. And, and that's pretty much, you know, what, you know, these, these two small changes in a state where um, the criminal justice system had become accustomed to violating people's parole as a way to fast track them back to prison, all of a sudden we took that tool away. And so what happened? So I'm going to show you a couple of graphs and we'll go over a little bit of kind of operations research to think about what they mean. Prop 47 was a, an initiative passed by voters. It's passed by 60% of the California voters. Basically what it did is it, re, it reclassified a bunch of drug offenses um, and then also some property crimes from wobblers, which could be charged as either a felony or a misdemeanor to straight misdemeanors. It raised the, the sort of dollar value of what the difference is between um, uh, felony uh, uh, um, larceny and misdemeanor larceny, which is basically theft without contact. And it, it raised the amount to 950 bucks. And then it also had this provision to resentence people and reclassify them for prior convictions. let's think about what the, the cumulative effects of these things are. So here's the, here's the prison population, and these are, these are weekly estimates of the population. This first red line here is no, uh, October 2011 when realignment goes into effect, okay? And we already saw that, that admissions dropped um, and releases dropped by less. Um, automatically, what, what you see is the prison population drops from about 165,000 people to, to around 135,000. The second red line is when uh, um, Prop 47 goes into effect, and you can kind of see the second impact of uh, Prop 47 on the prison population associated with those, um, that decline in felony drug arrests. What happens to jail populations in the state? So just, just to give you the scale, so when at our highest, we had about 170,000 people in prison on any given day. In, in, uh, in jail, in the county jails, we have between 75 and 80,000 uh, with some variation. Prior to uh, um, realignment, this is what it looks like. Um, given that realignment prescribed that people be punished with uh, short jail sentences for a parole violation, that created new pressure in the jail system. And then when Prop 47 went into effect, 
we had a, 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 a relief of the pressure on, on the prison system. And if we combine the two, okay, which is sort of an interesting thing to do, because in most countries, when they talk about their incarcerated population, they don't distinguish between whether you're pre-trial or whether you're or post-trial, or whether you're in prison or jail. It's just how many people are behind bars denied their liberty. That's what this graph is doing. It's combining jail and prisons. You can see basically that at our peak, we had about 250,000, and now we're down below uh, 100,000. Or, or down, or down at around two hundred thousand, and this has shrunk uh, uh, since as well, right? So we have these two very big uh, changes in in um, in uh, uh, two very big policy changes, and the state has has shrunk its correctional systems combined by about a quarter, right? It's a pretty big change over a relatively short period of time. What you can see is that. Crime was very low in the 60s, increased in the 70s and 80s, right? Kind of peaks in the early 1990s, and then it, it sort of declines quite drastically, right? And the first red line here is, is, uh, is realignment, right? When we have that big decline in the prison population. The second red line is Prop uh, 47 passing when we have further decline in prison population, big decline in the jail population. And this red line here, is basically uh, the last, the, the year when um, our incarceration rate in 2016, the last time we had an incarceration rate that low. So basically what we did is we rolled the incarceration rate back to 1993 levels when our crime rate was really high and our, our, uh, our crime rates have remained relatively low. Right, so some of the, the more alarmist predictions that, that were made by people just didn't come to pass, right? We didn't see a huge violent crime wave and we didn't see uh, a huge property crime wave. Now it could be, you know, what we're going to do when we talk about the research is we're going to focus on what's happening in this range around these two policy and then these little wiggles that happen in the end. So we do find some evidence, at least for some offenses, that there was an impact, but we, you know, we rolled back roughly 20 years of incarceration growth and we didn't roll back crime to what it was in 1990. Right. And, and so I think that that was an important thing that emerged from this, a lot of the research that the sky didn't fall. Let's think about some of the effects on racial disproportionality, okay, uh, in criminal justice involvement. So um, many have written about uh, how the growth in, in correctional populations from 1970s to the mid 2000s has, has had racial disparate impacts. And so, um, you know, uh, a few of us have been interested in what happens when, when you reverse course, right? Um, in, in the same way you can have adverse ra uh, racially disparate impacts of a, of a race-neutral policy, you can have racially disparate impa impacts of, of reversing course, right? And so we wanted to see whether that was true. Um, so so this, this picture is basically showing what happened to overall incarceration in, in California between 2007 and 2015. So this is bracketing Prop 47 and corrections realignment. So here's the pre-period. This is 2007 is way pre. 2010 is just before realignment goes into effect. And then 2015 is after realignment in Prop 47. And what you can see on any given day in these, in, uh, these uh, earlier years, 
about 10% of prime age black males, and that's people between 18 and 55, are institutionalized on any given day in a jail or prison in California. And that's actually lower than it is in other states, right? So in other states, or it's higher than it is in other states. In other states, it's about 8%, right? And then what we see is that after all this is said and done, you've kind of reduced the black incarceration rate by a full 2.2 percentage points, which doesn't sound like a lot, um, but uh, given, given the trends of recent years, it's actually a, um, a, a pretty dramatic change. In the rest of the country, we also saw a slight decline, but it was no way near as big. Now, if we look at Latinos and others, right, there's a smaller decline among Latino men. There's um, relative stability among Latino women. Among other people who are non-Latino, non-Black, non-White, you have relative stability. And among white people, there's a, there's a slight decline among, among men, right? So basically, if you look at this graph, what you're seeing is that race disparities are still there, right? So we still have 7.5% of black men as opposed to 1.3% of black men, but they've narrowed from what they were, right, by, by a couple percentage points, right? Now, um, actually, wait, this is California males, uh, non-California males, I'm sorry. Here's for women, okay? Um, for women... Just, just again, if you look at the scale here, so for African-American men, you know, you have a, a tenth. For African-American women, it's about one percentage point that's incarcerated in any given day. You don't, uh, you don't see as much narrowing in California um, relative to what's happening uh, in other states. And so in terms of, you know, the intersection of race and, and gender, right, what we're seeing is that res this reform seemed to have uh, the biggest impact on, um, on Afri African-American males. A lot of the work that you see here was a continuation of, of you know, a decade of kind of studying prison populations, trying to understand what it's doing to us and, and our, our correctional system. And then California just presented itself as this grand natural experiment, right? Because there was all this activity uh, happening here. And, and I, I've tried to some degree to remain somewhat neutral, right? Because, you know, we're going to, you know, we pre-specify what it is we're going to do, right? And we, we analyze the data and we report what we find. Um, it accorded what we found. I didn't expect there to be huge impacts of crime, uh, on crime. And, and I did expect it to narrow race disparities. And I think both of those things are good. So in terms of, you know, my opinion of the, the attempt to roll back Prop 47, I think that's a bad idea, right? Um, on the other hand, in, in terms of, you know, being engaged in policy, I, I think sort of the, you, you could already imagine that in, in, you know, in the current situation where we have hotspots in San Quentin and we have hotspots in county jails and we have hotspots in prisons around the country, and, you know, prisoners, for the most part, tend to be less healthy than everybody else, right? They're older, they have all sorts of comorbidities that increase their likelihood of, of, a, of a bad outcome if they become infected. Like, there, there's pressure at the moment to think about how can we, you know, reduce populations in a way that, that is not going to impact public safety, um, but that will also, you know, sort of reduce the likelihood that that people are dying behind bars simply because uh, they they're at an you know increased uh, likelihood of of um, of, uh, of capturing COVID nineteen, and I'm actually involved in a couple of efforts around uh, around that, um, you know, and that's pretty much the extent of my policy work in in this arena. <laughs>